This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Toddlers are misunderstood human beings. Known for their alarming tantrums and insatiable curiosity, raising them can bring a lot of joys, things like, I did it all by myself, and just as many frustrations. Is that chocolate in the carpet? The Montessori method offers a holistic approach for parents looking for a more peaceful way to be with their toddlers, to encourage their child's natural independence and curiosity while bringing some calm back into the home. In the United States alone, there are more than 4,500 Montessori schools catering to children from infancy through 18 years old, and they've produced graduates such as Bill Gates, Beyonce, and Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin, and many others. And in this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a certified Montessori educator and blogger about how you can incorporate Montessori methods into your home and daily life. We'll talk about some of the basic principles of Montessori child-centered learning, which encourages independence and practical skill building. We'll also talk about how you can set up your home to encourage a Montessori-like learning environment and the skills that toddlers need to learn and that we as parents need to learn if we're going to be able to teach them or help them learn. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about Montessori toddlers when Positive Parenting continues right after this. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of the show is Simone Davis, who's the author of The Montessori Toddler, A Parent's Guide to Raising a Curious and Responsible Human Being. Simone, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a delight. I should say joining us from Amsterdam, not just joining us from uh, from any place nearby where people are, unless you happen to I be know. in Amsterdam. It's, it's wonderful. The power of uh, technology. It's great. It, it is. So... Why don't you, for those who don't know, I think I think everybody probably knows the word Montessori and probably knows of kids who have been to Montessori schools, but I, I would be hard-pressed myself, and I think probably a lot of listeners are, to actually define what the Montessori philosophy is. Can you give us a quick backgrounder? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone knows what traditional education is, where the teacher stands at the front of the classroom, decides what everyone needs to learn today, and it's very much top-down learning. And the Montessori approach is where it's child-based learning. So basically we're looking at each individual child and trying to meet their needs so that they're engaged, curious learners, um, which sounds a little bit like chaos. Like how can a teacher possibly have 30 kids in a class and everyone learning at their own pace? But it's because of they have a second teacher, which is the environment, the classroom set up with beautifully prepared, rich curriculum, and each child works at their own pace through the materials. The teacher knows where they're up to, so you don't have tests. And the reason it also works really well is because you have mixed age groups with 
children, say from three to six-year-olds in one classroom, so the older children are constantly modelling for the younger children. The younger children, like, lap up and basically admire the older children at work and learn very naturally. And the older children can also then consolidate their learning by helping the younger children. You know yourself, if you um, explain something to someone else, you really have to understand what you're saying. So everyone wins, and you have this beautiful, calm classroom where children are engaged in their own learning. And, I mean, it's been around for a long time, right? Yeah, over 100 years. So yeah. Dr. Montessori was at like, the turn of the 1900s, um, and she was actually working with children in the slums of Italy, and then it was working with them, and they're like, oh, I wonder if this would also work with, you know, in our normal schools, and great results, and it spread all around the world. It's been amazing. And generally speaking, what's the age range for this kind of thing? Because it, it sounds like a class or a strategy that can work for younger kids, but I'm wondering if it works for... For older kids, the middle school or high school, or, or is there is there a point where Montessori says, okay, we've got to let kids learn in an environment that's going to be more like life? Yeah, so they basically are mostly known for preschool age from three to six. Um, I actually even work from birth, so I apply the same principles, but with young children and how you can actually apply these same principles at home. And then you have three-age children up to 12, and here in Amsterdam and in some parts of the world, you also get Montessori high schools. Um, and what Montessori herself envisaged were farm schools where children would go and live on the farm and then learn about things through bringing goods to market and tilling the soil and actually working together in a community. Um, because actually 12 to 15 year olds don't want to be sitting in a classroom so um, she was quite ingenious the way she thought of it um, but actually yeah that's a really good question are we really building our kids for the real world but actually um, we get enough of life's hard knocks you know that children and we're basically there to support them through that so even in the monster approach they're learning about things not going their way and having to wait their turn and how life works and sometimes you get a grumpy teacher or a grumpy kid in the class and they're managing those kind of things as well so i just love that you also get life skills through this approach not just like academic the yeah, road learning um or any of that kind of thing as an education so you're talking about Montessori as an educational philosophy in schools, but your book mm -hmm. is really designed to help parents apply that in the home, right? Yeah, exactly. I always say, like, it's all the secrets that I use in my classroom to get children to listen to me, um, that, you know, make children curious learners. And here, I'm going to tell you, this is how you can also do it with your own child. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I don't want to slice this thing too thin or, or pick on you too much, but... Isn't a home environment almost Montessori by design that, that there are only going to be just one or two kids probably, at least in that age group, right? So you're going to have mm -hmm. individual attention paid to each child. And so how, how would just a regular home environment differ from a Montessori home environment? Okay, so it's basically three things I think that would differ. And one is how you set up your home. So rather than a parent being in charge of, you know, preparing the lunch boxes and running around making breakfast for everybody, it's set up so that the children can help set the table, so they can be involved in the food preparation, so that they can find their own shoes, so that they can learn from a young age to get themselves dresses about independence at a very young age because they want to help and giving them success. Um, and then the types of activities you might have in a Montessori house are much less 
toys, so lots less clutter. Um, things are set up beautifully so they're engaging. The adult learns to actually look at their child and see what they're interested in rather than just buying, you know, something that says 12 plus months. Actually, what's making this child interesting? They're really trying to post those coins down that slot. Oh, maybe I'll look for, you know, an activity where they're practicing putting things, you don't say posting in America, in America do you? Um, you know, dropping something into a small slot, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so really get the child. And then the biggest part, I think the principles that you can apply in your Montessori home is the respectful approach that we have in the classroom where we're a child's guide as opposed to their boss or servant. So we're basically um, supporting the child to encourage them to learn, but also supporting them if they need help you know, interacting with another child. And so it's much less top-down, but also not like that the child has free reign either with this kind, clear guide. And I think one of the hardest things about this for parents anyway is to want to step in and do things for your child as opposed to letting them learn on their own. Is, is part of the Montessori approach that you're going to step back a little bit and let the kids learn the way that they learn, which is in my view anyway, the, the way that we all should learn, which is by making mistakes. Yeah, totally. And it's really hard to step back and let your child fall even or, you know, to see them cooking and they spill everything and say, oh, don't do this, don't do that. You know, actually see what happens if you have a scoop of flour and it falls on the floor. Oh, look, there's some flour. Let's go and get the dustpan and you sweep it up and then you learn that next time you'll be more careful. Um, and sometimes it takes many more times for them to miss the bowl before they learn it. But, yeah, definitely stepping back and letting them make their own mistakes. And that's right through in their whole schooling. They're going to make mistakes like... Um, you know, when my daughter started high school, she went to a traditional high school after being at Montessori, and I was really should like tell her that she needs to do her homework, otherwise she's going to, you know, get in trouble at school when it's coming. I'm like, I'm just going to step back, and she can have the consequences if she hasn't done it. And it took her a week to realize, oh, if I don't get my homework done, then the teacher really doesn't like it. And then I never took over that problem, and she was always very self, hmm. you know, she initiated herself how she managed her homework and that kind of thing. But do you have so, the yeah, conversation totally with her? Back. Do you have the conversation Sorry? with do you do you talk to her about that and say, Hey, you know, I notice you haven't been doing your homework and you know, there could be some problems that you're running into here or how's that working out for you or how are your grades or uh, to, to guide her a little bit or do you just wait for her to completely discover that on her own? Because some kids may not be paying attention to what their grades are until they get their, their final exams for the semester and they realize, Oh my god, I flunked the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for my daughter, I didn't need to say anything. She's a kid who worked that out for herself, but definitely that's why we look at the individual child, how much help do I need. Um, I need to do things like just checking they've got enough time because they tend to like going out with their friends and doing what, and, yeah, and we've got our own family commitments, people coming over like, oh, have you actually guys got enough time to get your um, homework done? Um, and that kind of thing. And other kids are going to be more like, you know, needing help with, oh, what have you got coming up and do you need me help to help you mm -hmm. plan it? Sure. So, definitely looking and seeing and having conversations if your child needs them, definitely. Okay. We're coming up on a break. We've got a minute or a minute and a half or so, but I, I want you to talk a little bit about setting up the home. You've got a, a chapter that talks room by room through the house, but just give us some general guidelines on, on setting up the home for Montessori-focused learning. Okay, so we're looking at, again at how a child can have success, do things by themselves. So if we're going to step back, we can't just you know, have, let them have access to things that they can't reach. So in your kitchen, for example, it might be as simple as having a low drawer or cupboard where they can get their own glasses and bowls, um, cups, and even maybe somewhere where they can glass of water so they don't have to say, Mom, I need you to get me a glass of 
um, water or something to drink. I'm always thirsty. Or I love having like a little snack area as well where you fill up uh, some snack containers in the morning and then they can help themselves during the day. So, again, this is giving them, you know, the tools that they need to be independent. Um, and you can sit down and have snack with them, of course, and um, you don't have to, like, let them be independent and never play with your own child. But it just means that they feel so pleased that they can actually help themselves whenever they like. Um, in the bedroom, it might be giving them access to some of their clothes as opposed to everything being in a wardrobe out of reach, having a few um, small, particularly with a young child, just two choices of simple clothing so they can choose what kind of T-shirt they like to wear and what trousers they want to wear for the day and making things accessible for them. Um, we also, they love helping, you know, clean. And so if you have a small area where you, they can access a small broom and a dustpan, then they always love to help. And I always put out, for example, a hand mitt or a cloth um, on the breakfast table with a small jug with milk or water or whatever they're mm -hmm. going to pour on their cereal um, so that they can help themselves as well. So little ideas like that to just always be looking, how can my child have success right now? And in the playroom, it might be having an activity actually set out in a basket with a small nut number of items so they can actually carry it over to a table or on the mat and play with their toy and then they can actually even bring it back because everything's at the ready for them to be able to manage right. themselves. Talking with Simone Davis, who's the author of The Montessori Toddler, A Parent's Guide to Raising a Curious and Responsible Human Being. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Simone about toddlers and Montessori and the Montessori approach and setting up your home and lots of other good stuff. I'm Armin Brott and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Three, two, one. Oh no. Which button am I? Oh. When every second counts, you can't wing it. Uh, guys, a little help up here? In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear. Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Simone Davis, who's the author of Montessori Toddler, A Parent's Guide to Raising a Curious and Responsible Human Being. Uh, so we were talking about setting up your home, and there's you, you go into the in, in the book in a lot more detail than you just did in, in just a couple of minutes there. But so I want pe to people to pick up the book, obviously, and, and and learn a little bit more about that for themselves. But so what are the the core skills that you're going to be working on? What's necessary or what's important for toddlers to learn? Toddlers love to work with their hands, so it gives them any opportunity to manipulate their grasp and refine any of those skills. Um, so I'm always looking at activities, anything from even baking and kneading and making bread um, through to some beautiful wooden toys that, you know, can be used to post a coin or to thread, you know, rings onto a very fine um, rod or string depending on how hot, refined they need to be. So those, anything to do with working their hand, eye-hand coordination, two hands working together. Then I love language. So toddlers need to develop their language and there's so many opportunities. One, you just have your daily conversation. So that's just not like a stream of information but sometimes stopping to ask questions. And even a young toddler who's not very articulate, you know, any attempt that they make, they realize that there's a conversation. Um, 
And there's, you can also give them rich vocabulary. So we often have vocabulary baskets in our classroom and parents like to make those at home as well. So around a theme. So it might be objects in the kitchen and then you might have a spatula and a whisk and all of the things that they can then also learn the names of. Just as they learn the names of a banana and apple, we can tell them maybe you'll get breeds of dogs and you can say this is the Labrador and this is the West Highland Terrier. And it's amazing what two-year-olds can learn if you oh, give yeah. them rich language because they're just like sponges and pick it up. Um, then, of course, gross motor movement. They need to be able to move. You can, you've seen any toddler, they try and climb on the table. So what are they telling me? I need to move my body, and how am I going to find other acceptable ways to move? Um, so picture triangles are really popular at the moment for people to have in their home um, or any climbing opportunities, just making a obstacle course out of you know cushions from your couch and a tunnel. Or um, I used to love throwing a blanket over the back of some chairs, and they can use those kind of things for gross yeah. motor skills. Or you could get as extravagant as building a climb climbing wall in your house so that they can climb the walls right. as well. What's interesting that w in listening to you talk about these things is that with the exception of, of language skills and vocabulary, you're not mm -hmm. talking about much in the way of academics. I mean, I think what other people would consider academics like math or science, uh, at least with that as, as the lesson. Are you working little learning experiences about math in there for, for three to six-year-olds? Because they can certainly learn that. I mean, if they can... I remember my 18-month-old my daughter had a, a babysitter who was a psychology student at uh, UC Berkeley, and, and my daughter would come <laughs> come home f with these incredible words. I, she, she was, I remember she, she was 18 months old, and she said, Daddy, what's a, a parapsychologist? <laughs> I thought... <laughs> Oh my goodness! I mean, you know, and and there's nothing. If she can pronounce it, there's no reason why she can't learn it. But uh, but you know, are you going to be working with? What happens when you cut a piece of bread into two pieces? Then you have two halves make a whole or something. Are you are you doing mm -hmm. that kind of stuff to? So to yeah, gently so we're always using rich concepts. learning experiences. So we're always giving them the words for halves and doing a lot of indirect preparation. So when I'm talking about toddlers, I'm talking up to three, four years old. So not as much in the conscious age where they're learning numbers and those kind of things so it's a lot of indirect preparation so as i'm even unpacking the shopping i'm counting out the oranges here's one here's two here's three so they're learning one-to-one -one correspondence mm -hmm. they learn mathematical properties when they set the table because there needs to be one plate for each person there needs to be one glass for each person and that's good how they're going to be able to see rather than counting like one two five three nine ten but actually learning maths and actually knowing numbers is when you know um that one is this onion and two is this onion and you know they can actually see that they're mathematical concepts but um you know we're not just interested in academics we're interested interested in the whole development of the child so their practical life skills things like building their executive functioning so they can do a whole task so we have things like flower arranging in our houses and we um help them set the table and wash the dishes and prepare food and that to me is more important than any math so they're going to pick up the math when they have really solid foundation when they're right. working with their right. hands yeah. I'm just curious if, as somebody who's been involved, obviously, in Montessori for a long time, whether you see that there are any shortfalls in the method, things that Montessori maybe could learn from other places or doesn't do as well. Um, I think it really depends on the teacher. I think it's really important to have a good Montessori teacher because I've seen sometimes, um, like if you have a teacher who says, oh, Montessori means follow the child, they're all allowed to do whatever you like, but you're not then giving them any guidance, then they might just avoid an area completely. So that's really important um, to make sure that, you know, there's a teacher who's really engaged. If your child doesn't like math, how are they going to engage their child in that learning area and check that there's development going on? 
um, I think that could be a problem. But I really think that Montessori is great for so many different types of learners because it's great for kinesthetic learners who need to, you know, touch and feel. And, you know, kids who can't sit still, for example, they're not stuck sitting at a chair. They can move around in between activities. There's a lot of movement built into activities. Um, and it could be also that your child is an observer so they can access a valid activity too. You don't have to be constantly working on a thing. You can learn from uh, watching an older child as well. So... There's so many things, I think, that are now being applied and people say, oh, look, this is a creative way to learn. It's a STEM system and actually it's just learning with their hands and making mm -hmm. discoveries for themselves, which has been a built-into monastery approach for over 100 years. And as far so we've been talking so far about things to do for the kids as far as setting up the home and the kinds of skills that they need to learn. What do you think that we as adults need to, to change or learn before we can even begin to do this? Because I think, you know, my, th I guess I, I gave you inadvertently an example uh, of just, I, I have no real experience with Montessori per se, but so I'm, I'm thinking in terms of academic skills. Uh, mm -hmm. is, that, is that an attitude that parents might want to uh, shelve for, <laughs> for the purposes of, <laughs> of what you're talking about? Um, I, well, but what I like about Montessori approach is not only will they get academic skills, they'll get so many other things as well. But I think stripping back, it's like trusting in the child that they are going to develop on their own unique timeline with their own unique way of learning. And so Montessori is great at teaching each unique child. And there's so many children who now are differently wired and it can suit them so well. And there's children, like you, you know yourself, and your daughter sounds like she was very articulate at a very young age. So how can her needs be met and a child who has, you know, really in great interest in gross motor movement at that moment and so meeting everyone where they're at? So um, what I think is that every child is on the planet for their purpose and we're so busy like trying to fill them with facts and mm -hmm. instead we want to, how can I actually help you develop as the best human being that you're meant to be? And that's such a switch. The other thing I think that parents need to do is not take on the children's problems. So if something doesn't go their way and we jump in to fix it. And as you said very much at the beginning of the interview, how can we actually help them learn from their mistakes? It's actually not jumping right. in to you know, fix the problem, but to be there to support them and guide them. So definitely not abandoning them, but letting them um, you know, take responsibility for themselves and things like that as well. And how do we deal with situations like a special needs or learning disabilities? Can Montessori help with that as well? Because there are going to be some kids who are not going to be able to learn at the same pace as other kids, and they may need a lot of time focused on one thing, or they may just never get certain kinds of things. Yeah, I, we had a great example um, in a monster in nursery where we had a child with cerebral palsy, and we just meant that her limbs weren't able to, you know, mean that she could walk. But she was a two and a half year old that had great capacity, and so she was just needed some more assistance moving around the classroom, but was so engaged with all the other things. So she didn't need to be in a special school where she would have missed out on these rich learning experiences just because her body was in a different place. So that's what I love about monster approach is that everyone's unique, and maybe you're, you know. In this case, the gross motor skills weren't as developed, but she can still, you know, be active in the other areas. And I have other children who are really busy with movement, and then all of a sudden they make a huge, you know, leap on their language skills. Um, so I think that if a special needs child, they can just be at where they're at. They don't need to rush through the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So they may need extra support, like 
and then they um, hopefully the teachers can be helped with that because if they physically need to be moved around, then that's going to be difficult on the teacher. But um, right. there's no reason why anyone with special needs couldn't be included in a Montessori classroom environment or that you could apply the same principles at home. In fact, I have a lot of people who say the Montessori approach has actually shown me how much capacity my child has, even though they have a difference. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't preclude needing or perhaps benefiting from a, a speech pathologist or... Uh, a reading coach or somebody who's got experience dealing with kids with dyslexia or something like that. It sounds like it can work yeah, together. Yeah, and you can get any extra, yeah, you could have any extra support that you needed. Right. Simone Davis, the author of The Montessori Toddler, A Parent's Guide to Raising a Curious and Responsible Human Being. Uh, Simone, thanks for joining us. Thanks for staying up late in Amsterdam. <laughs> Thank you so much for your interesting questions, and I wish you all a good day. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. We all know about the dreaded summer brain drain when students forget a lot of what they learned during the previous school year and have to spend the first few months of the new year catching up. You can help your kids turn that brain drain into a brain gain by encouraging reading over the summer. Here are some recent books that will not only capture children's attention, but also encourage them to read even more. Weird But True, USA, from National Geographic Kids. This fascinating book contains 300 unusual facts about the states that make up the United States of America. For example, California scientists modeled a solar cell after a fly's eye. Jell-O is the official state snack of Utah, and Nutty Narrows Bridge in Longview, Washington, was built so squirrels can safely cross a busy road. It's for kids ages 8 to 12, costs under $7. Explorer Academy from National Geographic. Kids and curious adults learn about cracking codes from the ancient to the most modern, from simple letter replacement like A is Z and Q is L, etc., and Morse code to semaphores and pig pen grids. Yep, you're going to have to read the book to find out what that is. For ages 8 to 12, costs about 9 bucks. Amelia Earhart, Pioneer of the Sky, by James Buckley Jr. and Kelly Tyndall. In a time when women rarely drove cars, Amelia Earhart flew a plane across the Atlantic Ocean by herself. She also set dozens of other aviation records and is one of the most famous missing persons in history. This graphic novel explores Earhart's life, accomplishments, and the many theories surrounding her disappearance. It's for kids ages 8 to 12 and costs under 10 bucks. Take Your Pet to School Day by Linda Ashman and Suzanne Kaufman. Most schools have a no-pets rule, but what would happen if some clever animals hacked into a school's computer and changed that rule? The answer plays out in this cute book where pets join their children in the library, art class, the cafeteria, and more. The results are predictable and hilarious. It's for ages 3 to 7, 
costs about 12 bucks. The Very Short, Entirely True History of Unicorns by Sarah Lasko and Sam Beck. Unicorns may not be real, or are they? But they've been the subject of speculation and mystery for thousands of years. Readers, young and old, will learn about unicorns as they've appeared throughout history and in nearly every recorded culture. Beautifully illustrated with photos and drawings, it's for ages 8 to 12 and costs under $10. Duel at Aralen, Ranger's Apprentice, The Royal Ranger, Book 3, by John Flanagan. Fans of Flanagan's Ranger's Apprentice series were understandably disappointed when the series wrapped in 2013, but they were just as understandably excited when the original hero, Will Treaty, began training his own apprentice, Maddie, in a new series, The Ranger's Apprentice, which launched in 2018. In this third volume, Maddie has to rescue her father and his men who are trapped and surrounded by enemy soldiers. It's for ages 10 and up, costs under $13. The Beach is Loud and Nope, Never, Not For Me, both by Samantha Cotterell. Samantha Cotterell, who describes herself as being on the autism spectrum, has written a series of books for wonderfully sensitive kids. Her goal is to allow kids to recognize themselves in playful, fun, yet therapeutic way without labels. These books are not only great for kids, but they also allow parents to step into their children's worlds and see things from their point of view. It's for ages 3 to 7, costs about $12. You can find reviews of many more books, games, stories, items, toys, and all sorts of wonderful things that you can do with your kids and the rest of your family at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another show for you, but stay right there, because there's more of this Positive Parenting Show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. After this, from the MrDad.com radio network. One eighty over one eleven, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. One forty-five over ninety-two, and then I had a heart attack. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell. Everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of Mr. Dad. Thanks for staying with us. Toddlers, preschoolers, three-nagers, whatever you want to call this age, it is without question a tumultuous time. It's a time that my guest for this part of today's show calls psychotically awesome. When the little ones become toddlers overnight, 
all the parenting tricks become ineffective in the face of a whole lot of, well, let's call it personality. Why? Well, it's all about individuation, which means that little kids are realizing finally that they're separate from their parents and they're seeking control. The result? All those tantrums that we know and love so well. And as if that weren't enough, the recent push of early academics coupled with pressure to make childhood magical has created an odd paradox. You've got a bunch of three-year-olds sitting in their own poop while they're taking Mandarin lessons. So what's the trick to taking back toddlerhood? Well, drawing on her one-on-one -on -one work with thousands of families, her training as a social worker, and what she's learned raising her own son, my guest for this part of the show, Jamie Glowacki, breaks down how parent behavior affects toddler behavior, and she's going to talk to us about how to trade overscheduled, overstimulated helicopter parenting for imaginative, exploratory, independent discovery. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is... Jamie Glowacki, who's the author of Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler, Tackling Those Crazy, Awesome Years, No Timeouts Needed. Jamie, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's talk about the, how life has been for you since the previous book, which was Oh Crap, and having to do with diaper changing and that sort of stuff, and diapers and potty training, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and then this book where your, your child is somewhat out of diapers and moving into those horrible toddler years yeah or lovely toddler but, years depending on what day it is for sure well you know it's funny i've been you know believe it or not i'm actually you know i got a little burnt out on talking about poop like every single day <laughs> so i was sort of you know already expanding my practice what i was seeing across the board with potty training and you know your average two to three-year-old which is the same age range as the second book but what I was seeing is this pendulum swing that keeps getting more and more severe every year and sort of a lack of boundaries or people expecting the, the strangest things from little kids, like expecting logic to work. And I was like, they're two, they're three years old. Like, you can't use logic. Um, you know, and, and parents' expectations were sort of out of whack. And so it was a sort of natural progression to write the second book. I had already started to do just straight-up parent coaching because so many parents resonated with oh crap potty training and my philosophy and you know how i speak and i'm pretty uh i shoot from the hip and so they were like you know hey could, could we hire you as a parent coach and it just naturally drifted into there and then simon and schuster of course you know oh crap potty training was a hit so they were definitely looking for another book from me <laughs> well that's so, not a bad thing yeah 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 it was sort of a natural progression 
And I'm just kind of wondering wait, whether you get some pushback from people. Because I, I, I remember there were a few times where I've, I've been speaking to groups and have been talking about little kids, a little younger than toddlers, but talking about the, their, their lack of logic. And I, I made the analogy. I said, you know, th- 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 they're little kids, toddlers or, or infants. They're kind of like cats. And there's no sense in trying to discipline them. You, you do with what you do with a cat. You pick the thing up and you turn it around the other direction rather yeah, than yeah, let yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, yep. You know, and, and people say, how can you say that? What a terrible thing to say about a child. And say, well, you know, but the, the, the truth is that <laughs> that's it. They're, they're not logical. They're, they're going to try to do as much damage as they possibly can before you catch that them. Is exactly, exactly. Yeah, they're, um, well, especially that age, like 18 to 24 months, it's like, it's like active suicide. If there's a cliff, they're going to go for it, you know? Um, yeah, I find that parents, I think what happens, honestly, is I think, you know, like we might be disgruntled with our parent, you know, how we were parented. But if you think about it, when our last memory of being parented probably is like, like the teenage years, right? So I find parents of toddlers trying to employ the same uh, philosophy and idea and discipline that they would employ with a teenager to a toddler. And just like you said, they're, I love the idea that they're like cats. I always say they are actually, your average three-year-old has the same brain development as your average dog. So that's a really great way, you know, when I see parents like really trying to talk to their child about something they've done wrong, I'm like, you know they're not listening. It's just like if you were saying this to the dog. Like, no, 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 we don't pee on the carpet. That's mommy's favorite carpet and and don't you know that you pee outside you wouldn't say that to a dog you'd be like no stop (laughs) it stop it right now yeah Yeah. and and definitely that's a huge part that's a chapter in when and oh crap i have a toddler because shaving language i just find that parents are just over explaining everything and we've got there's just the brain development of your average two or three year old is they don't have executive functioning yet. Their limbic systems aren't formed. You know, they, they need they're very black and white thinkers. So to try to muck it up with all this gray area and talk so much, it's just ineffective. Well, but then you get into a little bit of a gray area because you don't want to assume that your children are going to remain puppies for life. And, oh, and we don't want, sure, you know, we don't sure. want to talk down to them, right? So you want to be a little out ahead. So when when do you, or how do you make a, a, a nice mix between understanding that they may not be listening, but there's some little bit of what you're saying that's going to get through? I would say, I always tell parents, you want to use rich language when you're speaking to them about just about anything. You know, if you're talking in the car, oftentimes uh, a scenario that I see is, is kids get contentious in the car. Right? Like you'll they'll say something and then they'll start to throw a fit and you'll you'll get into a power struggle with them. And and I think the car is a perfect place to have dialogue. So like if you're a kid I give an example in the book, like the, you might say, you know, oh look at the clouds and your kid says, you know, I see pink clouds and there's not a pink cloud and you find yourself saying, you know, No, there's no pink clouds and that's a perfect place for rich dialogue where you could say, you know, I I don't particularly see that. You know, where do you see that? Can you show me? Do you see any shapes? So you could start to use all this other language. Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly when it comes to disciplining, though, or to reprimanding, or when you need your child to listen, you don't want to muck it up with too many words. So in those cases where you do need to say, no, I I don't want you to do that, that's that's sufficient, not an explanation of your feelings and their feelings, right? So just about in any other area, we do want to use rich language. And, of course, we want to be reading and singing and all those things. But in general, I find parents, when they when they are trying to discipline or reprimand or when it's a case when the child really does need to listen, I find parents use far too many words. 
Yeah. And then throughout yeah. the day, they use less words. They save their language in other areas. And I'm like, no, 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 flip it. <laughs> so let's talk about discipline. So you, you mentioned it a few times. And at the, at the heart of discipline is the idea of boundaries. And how do you begin to set boundaries for a child who's life goal is to break as many of them as quickly as possible? That's such a good question. That's like several chapters of the book. And I have a coaching circle online. And that's the bulk of our work is figuring out how to set boundaries. For me, I think the boundaries lie in, well, number one, I think from zero to five years, like get rid of the notion that you I hear parents all the time, like, I I want this relationship with my child. And that's not your job in zero to five. Your job is boundaries, rules, and keeping your child safe. Then they can depend on you. From a psychological standpoint, if they don't even have those boundaries, like set bedtime, set mealtime, knowing that you're the one in control, that you've got this, that means eliminating a lot of choice, right? That, That this is how their day goes in routine and structure. Knowing that keeps them psychologically safe. If they don't have that, even in the best intentioned, you know, uh, middle to upper class homes. I'm not talking about you know like kids, kids in poor homes who who may not have parents there, you know, who are neglected. Um, but your child can be psychologically unsafe, and so they are scrambling for those boundaries, and they're going to push and push and push until you give them those boundaries. And so, learning to set them is, of course, totally individual, and it depends on the parents. Like, what what is behind the parents that they can't set the boundaries? What are what are they bringing to the parental table? And that's a lot of emotional work that you have to do. Um, but yeah, I tell parents that it's emotionally swaddling, right? Like, why do we swaddle babies who need to sleep? Because their limbs are flailing. They're not in charge of their limbs yet, right? So they're flailing, and they'll whack themselves in the face. And the same thing goes for boundaries, right? We're emotionally swaddling them because they're flailing. They are out to set. They're going to wreak havoc on your house and your your psyche if you let them, right? So we we set these parameters so that they don't and they don't flounder. So you don't think that the the question that was (laughs) yeah, but you don't think that swaddling is having to do with making them feel more secure. That it's really more of a self protective or not self protective, but us protecting them from from hurting themselves. Oh, I think it's both. No, no, no. It's absolutely to make them feel secure and and and, and taking care of. Absolutely, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why that got lost. Oh, okay. Um, no, I just want to make sure. No, I, I, it was a fascinating theory. I just just wanted to clear yeah. it up. That's okay. 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 No, I say too. Like, um, why? Okay, why do we fence in our yard? Let's talk about physical boundaries, right? Right. Physical boundaries are usually very easy. Because we fence in our yard because you don't let a two- or three-year-old out your front door to navigate. You don't because they'll get hit by a car. They don't know enough about the world, so we keep them in a fence. And the same thing goes for, you know, their their psyche, their emotional life, their psychological life. Those are the rules, those things that aren't tangible that we can't see. And I would say the biggest mistake I see, and it's it's hilarious because I'm working with a bunch of clients right now, same thing. We start setting the boundaries, and they... You know, the next appointment, they're like, I'm devastated. It's not working. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, because you set a boundary doesn't mean the kid's not going to kick up against it. That's their job is to see if you mean business. If the minute you set a boundary, they're going to they're gonna try to get out of it. They're going to try to figure out a way. Just like when we fence them in a yard, they're going to try to escape. Why yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I'd say that's the biggest thing is parents set a boundary. 
the child bucks against it, and then the parents move the boundary, and that's where you get into trouble because you're like, no, now they're going to keep pushing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Talking with Jamie Glowacki, who's the author of Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler. We're going to be taking a quick break right now. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jamie about what's going on with toddlers and want to start talking about engaging the toddler mind. I'm Armin Brock. You're listening to Positive Parenting. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Don't be that guy. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba, please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brod. If you're just joining us, talking with Jamie Glowacki, who's the author of Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler, Tackling These Crazy Awesome Years, No Timeouts Needed. So let's do talk about the, as I mentioned just before the break, uh, Engaging the Toddler Mind. That's in the, the kid part of the book. There's The book is divided up into a couple of different sections. There's the parent part of the book in which we are, are blamed for everything that's wrong with our kids. And then there's the, uh, the kid part of the book where we, we start taking a look at what's going on with what's happening in their mind. So, and you talked about some of that uh, earlier about stop educating and stop talking so much. But w- what's, what's going on? Give us an idea of brain development in the, in the toddler years and what we need to look out for. I think so much of what parents struggle with is we underestimate what our kids are capable of and then we overestimate certain things. So one thing, for example, is I regularly hear from parents who, you know, my three-year-old won't sit and hold a pencil to write his name. I'm like, oh, my God, he's three. He shouldn't be sitting. He shouldn't be writing his name yet. He should be exercising, you know, using tape and scissors to build the muscles in those three fingers that we use for writing. And so the brain, I think what happens is we just underestimate what they're capable of, and I'm a huge fan of, developmentally they should be working on life skills right now so you have so many three-year-olds who aren't being challenged right they're being asked to sit still and focus and be well behaved in situations where they physically can't and yet we're denying them what they are capable of and you know things like helping in the kitchen and even board games we we there's a collective dumbing down, I feel like. You know, like, four-year-olds are totally capable of playing something like Battleship. And parents regularly would say, no, 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 they can't. They can't. That, that's too old for them. Um, so it's about engaging, you know, finding things that are challenging. And it could be some kids love, like, worksheets. You know, you can go to Barnes & Noble and get one of those preschool worksheets. Some kids really love those. I find that the more contentious a kid, the more challenging your child, probably they're really smart. And they need they they might need some like <laughs> some like actual like math drills or something like that. Even though I'm opposed to the early educate you know the early yeah. academic. Um, but yeah, I would say that just in general, it's it's about 
finding where they are developmentally and working with that. So I use the executive functioning, for example. I'm a huge fan of whiteboards around the house with lists because kids don't have developed executive functioning yet. And parents expect them to be able to do, you know, they'll rattle off two or three tasks. You know, go to your room and get your clean shirt and bring it to me. That's, that's a lot for a little kid to remember. So I'm a big fan of whiteboards to sort of put the, the tasks down and the child can cross them off. Mm -hmm. But it helps keep everything orderly. So, again, I think that's a huge area of yeah. where parents are overestimating their ability and underestimating in certain areas. Sure. With the executive functioning. You know, I want to have you talk a little bit about technology here. I, I had a book that just came out on fathers and toddlers just uh, last month, in fact. And yeah. one of the areas that I talked about was technology, and and I, I, I felt old as I was writing this section, but I think it's <laughs> it's not necessarily that, that so many people are, are giving their, their toddlers phones or tablets or other kinds of devices. And I talked to some pediatricians and did a lot of research on studies, and they're finding that little kids don't have the same muscle tone that kids did a few generations ago because they're just dragging things from one end of a screen to another instead of learning how to actually pick something up and balance it on top of something else, which takes sure. a whole lot of skills. And they're also missing out on some empathy. And you mentioned something about the exercise that they need from, from uh, operating a scissors. And talk, talk about technology and, and what you're finding with your clients, because I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are just plopping their kids in front of a device. There are. You know, a lot of times the clients I work with are super aware of this. So I, I think, you know, I think most parents know that it's not great. So I always say, you know, if you are going to use a device, I always say, you know, like for two or three years, just looking through your camera roll often is enough, you know, like you don't have to put them in front of a game or uh, worse, the worst thing I think for toddlers for zero to six is these educational apps, quote unquote educational apps. Oh, and yeah. they're really not. They're pushing buttons. They're hitting that dopamine response. You know, you're, you're doing stuff for like gold stars or collecting the prizes online. So I don't care for those at all. I think there's some really, um, there's some really cool apps out there. You know, there's some maze apps and there's some things that if you're going to have your kid on a device, but generally speaking, for me, I'm all about outside. Like, get outside. That gives your kids all the skills they need. And part of my book is not just helping parents mitigate this crappy behavior they see in toddlers, but I think what we're losing, Carmen, is the idea that these zero to six years, this is the foundation for the next chunk of years, right? So, like, parents are looking at childhood in a vacuum. Like, if I can just get through this day. Right. They're not looking for the long term goal. And that's where technology comes into play. Right. It's like I'm exhausted. I'm going to put my kid in front of a screen and it happens. But we have to if we could just get kids more outside um, that builds all the skills they need. Penmanship has completely gone down the tubes. And I was working uh, with an OT, an old OT who said it's not technology itself, it's not keyboarding, why penmanship is taking a hit. It's lack of core muscles. So yeah. kids aren't actually using their core muscles enough to build its gross motor skill first that build the fine motor skills. So when she's working with a kid on penmanship, she goes back to core exercises. And, of course, I, like I hesitate to say that because I get crazy parents who then go put on a core video, like a sad video for their kids. But the basic, like, think of like what we did when we were kids, crab walk, wheelbarrow. Incidentally, both of those um, are not allowed in schools anymore because of our litigious society and kids, like, hurting themselves. So right. part of it is our, even our school system. Do you know, oh, my God, this is mind-blowing. Tag is illegal 
like most schools, public schools aren't allowing kids to play tag on the playground because kids have lost their proprioception and their vestibular input and they don't know how to like tag a kid and turn on a dime. They're knocking kids over. So all that comes back to the gross motor skills of toddlerhood. So we've got to go back to like leapfrog. All those games that we played outside that get your kids moving, I call it big play, like big raucous play where they're using whole body movements, not just, oh, I'm sorry, you opened a can of worms here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, th- this is exactly, it's exactly right. I mean, uh, you, know, you, you and I couldn't be closer together on this one. It, it just, it's just, it's disturbing and sad how much of this stuff is going on. I can't, I'm, I'm really, I'm not all on the let's blame it on technology. I, there's so no. many other factors going on. One of them is the uprise in organized sports. Like, that's right. a thing. People exactly. think that's play. And so peewee soccer is a huge thing. And people think that, okay, I'm getting my kid running playing peewee soccer. Number one, it's adult-led. So your child's not learning any negotiating skills with their peers. It's adult-led, and they're running. So they're not using all their arms. They're not using their core, right? So that, this, like, increase in the organized sports, that's a really huge thing. Um, The idea, sure, a generation ago, five-year-olds could walk themselves to school. Now we think that would be horrific, and we know statistically crime is down. But we don't do that anymore, you know? So kids aren't outside playing. We're helicopter parents. We have so... Um, low tolerance for discomfort in our kids. We don't let them work out their own deals in the sandbox. Yeah. And of course, a two or three or four-year-old is going to need help negotiating their peers. They are going to need you to step in occasionally. But at the first sight of anything gone wrong, we cry bully, we jump in. And, and so we're not letting kids work it out. We're not letting them get a little hands-on. You know, I'm not saying yeah. let your kids fight it out in the sandbox. But there's a there's a there's some hands-on play that happens with kids. You know, some wrestling, yeah. some roughhousing, and we jump in. We think it's bullying. So, so Jamie, think, we we only have just a minute left. I just want you to okay. quickly g- give me that. That's okay. I'll have to have you back on. But what's the one thing you want parents to know about toddlers at this point, and and how we need to interact with them to help them to be the best they can be for the next period of the life. The best thing I want to say is set your child up to be the best they can be. This age, you are never going to get rid of all the crappy behavior. You won't because they're exploring. There's explosive emotional development. There's explosive brain development, explosive physical development. It's all going to collide in tantrums. It's all going to collide in bad behavior occasionally. But set yourself up. Set your child up to be the best they can be. Appropriate sleep. Air on the side of more sleep. Always, our kids are underslept. Good meals, no snacking. Good, you know, snacking contributes to, to picky eating and less meal time, less nutritious food. And do the things. Keep a tight schedule. Be don't be afraid to stay home. Stay home if you need a quiet day. Too many activities string your child out. Stay away from high stimulation, and that will set your child up to be the best they can be. And plenty of unstructured play. Yes. <laughs> Jamie Glowacki is the author of Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler, Tackling These Crazy Awesome Years, No Timeouts Needed, and you can visit her at her website, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, Glowacki, G-L-O-W-A-C-K-I, dot com. Jamie, thanks so much. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.